Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, it's been my profession to connect with people's stories. And when you think about it, it's the conversations that we have with ourselves and with others that truly shape us. It's through exploring these stories that we start to find a pathway around the magnificent and the remarkable question. So what does it actually take to live a standout life? Throughout this podcast, I sit down with influential women and a few good men and we chat about how they live a life of purpose while still making progress. We dig into their stories, both the successes and the struggles, and in doing so, we get some amazing insights into what it takes to live big and ultimately how they've found the wins in this crazy, busy world. So let's dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. This episode, I sit down with the beautiful Trisha Velthausen, who last year was awarded the Australian HR Award for CEO of the Year. She's the CEO of Churchill Education, which is an RPL organisation based in Brisbane, but has an absolutely fascinating story. In fact, stories was the common denominator of our conversation because Trisha is one of the most beautiful storytellers that I have ever encountered. And even from the steps from being a Crown Prosecutor to now being the CEO, she talks about stories have always been part of her career. It's a big part of her passion about supporting people to step into having brave hearts and minds and why the work that she does and how she connects with her team ended up in her receiving this award of the CEO of the year. You are going to love the stories that Trisha shares as much as I loved sitting down and connecting with Trisha Veldhausen. Trisha, friend, um, is how natural is this, right? Just sit in a studio with a big <laughs> mic in front of us and have a chat. This is how we always talk. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Usually with a cup of tea and a scone or something. Yeah, and children Natasha. madly chasing around. Madly chasing around. But look, it's um, it's such a delight and I'm excited to, to dive into some of the conversations. I want to start, last year you were awarded the award of CEO of the year with the Australian HR Awards. And I, I know was. you're kind of holding your breath even yeah. <laughs> when I say that out loud. Yeah, I actually sold the dress I wore the did other day. Oh, I did because I just went, I don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> it's done its job, it's right? Done its job. <laughs> I said to the lady, it's a lucky dress, take it with you. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, but, but look, yeah. when you were, um, you were given that award mm. um, the evening, and it was down in Sydney, mm. right? Yeah, it was about 800 people came out for a national HR awards. Yeah, amazing. Um, and in the crowd, you had your your eldest daughter, Ellie. What was that moment like to hear your name called out and then to go, you know, stand up on stage and give that acceptance speech, knowing that, that she was in the crowd? I... It's an interesting thing. I have a rule as a mum that in business I can control whether or not I am away on the children's birthdays. And this particular event, the awards ceremony, was for Ellie's birthday. And um, so it seemed to me that the choice was to take Ellie with me and she was 11, turned 11. Um, and I really didn't expect to that it would be my name that was called out. I was very clear, in fact, that it wasn't. I couldn't figure out kind of how I'd even got to that stage. I looked at the names and the companies that these other CEOs had come from and I just thought, oh, well, this is fun. <laughs> Ellie can have a nice dinner in Sydney with Randall, my husband and I, and, and this will be an experience for her. And so when my name was called out, I didn't actually move straight away because I just put my hand in my head in my hands on my elbows on the table and sat there for um, probably too long um, and probably 
nowhere near as long as I think. Mm. Um, what was going through your head? I really um, the not good enough conversation. Like I'm, mm. you know, Brene Brown probably nails it really well. And that part of my head was, this can't be right. Um, I've seen the list. I know who the other people, I know the companies they come from. You know, this is, how is this me? So I had to gather myself up and go onto the stage and the um, MC um, actually made the comment that I was the only award recipient of the whole evening that seemed genuinely surprised. <laughs> um, and I, I was, I managed to accept the award and take myself off stage and I really had no idea where I was. I felt so disjointed and people wanted to interview me and I was supposed to make sense and I was trying on you know one part of myself to answer things and engage in these conversations and on the other I felt that I had completely disappeared and I really wasn't sure how I'd got here and who I was and how could this be um, that this was even happening and I was wondering you know that, that dual conversation the outward face engaging and smiling and standing with the photos and um and the other inside me of me thinking I don't even know where I am right now I'm so lost um physically and kind of in myself and all of a sudden I heard this call of mama and I looked up and Ellie was running towards me and she broke through the barriers <laughs> and um joined me and the lady um who was kind of facilitating the process, I think realised in that moment that I really needed her. And so we had the photos together at that point. And um, without her, I think that's a, probably a pretty good reflection of how I live life, that the um, my family ground and remind me of who I am at all times and, and they're the, the base that I call home. So, What do you think you saw in her eyes in that moment. She was so proud and so excited for me in a way that I couldn't be for myself. Mm. So that was um, that was a real revelation to see in somebody else's eyes who I trusted because kids are incredibly honest. <laughs> so there is no Sometimes disgust. brutally so. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. and so, but in her face was such genuine joy in the moment and there was no part of her head that was going, hey, mum, how, how did you get that? Like she was just completely willing to celebrate and to see who I, who I was in her eyes and obviously maybe who I was seen as through the judge's eyes, if that makes sense. Um, and, and that was um, the grounding moment. As soon as I'd slipped, got through that process, I slipped my shoes off and walked out <laughs> with the award and, and my daughter and my husband and, um, and just kind of took the time to look at Randall's face too and the pride he felt, which, you know, maybe it shouldn't, but continues to surprise me when I see pride in, in the eyes of those I care about most. So. Yeah, and it's that, yeah, reconnection, as you say, it's almost that, that surprise, but seeing that genuine, because you can't hide that, no. especially in our kids, you can't hide their emotion or their experience, can you? And yeah, and I, be... I found myself thinking, you know, I'm raising this young woman and she's extraordinary. And I make sure I tell every teacher she's got that she is, much to her horror. But I did have this moment of thinking, well, she got to see this. And I'm a firm believer in what our children can see, they can believe for themselves. So I thought, even if I can't see this right now in the full sense, um, she has seen something and, and her sense of 
being ourselves and um, what we've got to bring to a situation can be recognised and honoured. And I just thought, well, 11 years old, she's seen something that maybe I don't want her to be the CEO. I'd have no dreams for her other than the dreams she holds for herself. Um, But I thought the possibility is before her. And that's been a good event tonight. Yeah. And it's that recognition that it's okay to to be recognised for what you've done um, publicly. For yeah, her, which is, you know, imagine. really a very uncomfortable spot for me, but I'm working on it that my children don't feel that same level of discomfort, if that makes sense. So for me personally, I'm not sure. I continue to work on it, but I don't know that it'll be ever something I nail. Mm. But for them to to stand and be that have that comfort in themselves of this is who I am, this is what I did, and I brought this to my community. Mm. That's the part that I aspire to. And it's such an honour, obviously, and, and um, that award came through a whole lot of hard work and a lot of stuff that you've done and, and your business and your company with your husband, Randall, mm. um, Churchill Education. I really want to dive into that in a moment, but I want to start, um, you actually started your career as a Crown prosecutor. What, why? <laughs> Look, um, it was, I guess, two reasons. I had um, a, an amazing teacher for three years of my primary schooling and, um, you know, you talk about a good teacher and the impact you have in your life. I was lucky enough to have an extraordinary one for the three years in a row. And he once told me that um, being a lawyer meant that you had to be really, really smart and you had to work really, really hard. And, and it, my brain just went, let's do that then. Let's do that. Um, and it was kind of the way I defined myself. So I worked really hard and I, at the time, watched too much Carson's Law, which was a show back when I was growing up in the 80s. And But unusually, it had this female actress playing um, a barrister. And, it, it, you know, Lorraine Bailey was it. And all I could see was, oh, I could do that. That's extraordinary. So I knew from nine that I wanted to be a criminal barrister. And then that was the goal. You know, I kind of also developed this part of me that loves to tell stories. So, you know, storytelling in criminal law is is the bread and butter of telling people about what's happened, the story about what's happened and sharing with the jury. So I ended up um, in that area for 10 years. I look at it too and go, there's a, it was always a real drive for me about community and contribution and what is it that we bring? And so I was a prosecutor. I wasn't the defence counsel because I stood for the community. Um, and I came to specialise in prosecuting child sex offences, which you know wasn't. I don't think that's anything anyone ever plans. But it shared with me this. I I, I took it as a real privilege because I got to hear people's hardest stories, and see their courage in coming to tell them. And then seeing their courage when the outcome wasn't what they sought. And I, you know, I always, it was only twice in my 10 years that I didn't believe the victim, that, you know, I didn't absolutely believe their story to be true. And that, that time really taught me that everybody has a story and we just have to take the time to listen. But it also taught me that, you know, 10 people can have witnessed the same thing and all have a completely different experience and all be having their own truth in it. And when I went into business, the power of storytelling um, was something that both Randall, he'd been a police officer and I, um, could see that everybody had a story and it, and it was our job to help them tell that story. It's so interesting that, yeah, I guess what you're really describing is that that industry is being a primarily a storytelling industry because I guess as an outsider, what comes to mind, it's it's numbers. Like it's, yeah. it's you know, it's law 5.2 and yeah, it's yeah. this and that and it's rules and it's authority. Um, and yet what you're describing is what attracted... And 
and what kept you there was the story. It really, for me, it was, um, in fact, I didn't do, like I wasn't a tax lawyer where there were numbers and numbers, you know, not my favourite things to spend time with really. But um, in criminal law, it really does have this sense of you have to hear the story of the event, you have to hear it from multiple people and then you have to find, be, you're in fact gifted the responsibility of, of combining those pieces and telling an overall story. Um, in a courtroom. And one thing I learnt really on, early on in that world was that the better I told the story, the more likely I was to take the jury with me. So if I was the number type lawyer, you know, the one that was very clinical and you know, ladies and gentlemen, the jury, you'll hear from Alison Hill and she will tell you that she stood on that corner. If I did it that way, it, it was never going to take anyone. The brain switches off. But if I told the story of the day that, you know, this witness um, stood and the wind was cold and she wondered whether to cross now or wait, people start to lean in what's happening because we're geared to share stories. Um, so I wasn't, I was the prosecutor that um, I think I did a good job, but not all the judges like me because I wasn't clinical. I didn't mm. keep it that way. And it exposed my heart. I was the one that, um, the person that took on the story in my heart. And for that reason, there's a season, I think, that you can do that sort of work. And for me, it was 10 years. Um, 10 years is a long time to be wearing those stories. I think it is. Do you, um, that stepping into the story of that that art, that kind of work, Mm. was that something that you had seen maybe other lawyers or prosecutors do? Or was that something that you just kind of went Actually, this is the way that I want to... I actually had this where I had one great um, mentor who was a beautiful storyteller and he's now, in fact, the Director of Public Prosecutions in Queensland. Um, He's an extraordinary career. But he never lost the connection with the story. And I watch the contrast of those that became clinical and hard. And, and I understand why they do it. They do it to be safe. Um, but I watch those two alternatives and he was unusual but I suddenly found myself in that style of work. And so it, the one rule I had for myself was that I needed to be myself in this. And if that meant that I was teary at points when I was, you know, at home preparing and reading a story or sitting with a witness and hearing, and I was, because it it should be the sorts of stories that move us. Um, if we're not moved, I worry about us as a community. And but I looked into the eyes of these people and thought the be- they deserve the best of me. Um, and so I took a path knowingly that this was how I was going to behave, knowing that not everyone would like it, but knowing that I could go home and feel that I had given these victims and this community the very best that was in me. And truly hear their story. Truly hear their and story. I think that's what happens when we move yeah. more into that clinical. Is, um, and yet it's really natural, as you say, we totally understand where... Yeah, it's go a safety mechanism. Safe. Yeah. Um, and it's not hard. It doesn't hurt. Yeah. Um, I was a little klutzy too, though. I was the lawyer that, you know, there's rules around putting your wig on when the judge comes in. And I was the person that would have the wig, you know, caught on my folder. So I'd put the wig on my fold and my brief would be swinging <laughs> from the back or the big robes. I'd knock over glasses of water and the jury. I was a little bumbly, but I was still me. I love that. It's like, there's plenty of robes aren't yeah, practical. I know. <laughs> I, know. I wasn't really made and... for it. It's a whole other story. But you shouldn't be too klutzy and do that sort of work because it lacks all of the official (laughs) behaviour when you've got your files swinging from the back of your head. Trust me, don't worry. Exactly. I'm in control. (laughs) So tell me, what was the steps going from Crown Crown Prosecutor to CEO of the year? Oh, goodness. 60 um, seconds or less. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Put simply, my husband, um, Randall, developed post-traumatic stress disorder and... um, 
he was in a forced career change and we we say it with more ass than class, we stumbled into business and we'd set up the business and while I was on maternity leave with our second child and I went back to work and I picked up a brief at the last minute, which is pretty common, I'm afraid, in that circle, a you know, case for the next day. And that case was probably one of the worst I'd ever encountered, but it involved um, the murder of two children that were the same age of my children. And mm. so I was sitting in bed preparing this brief and my husband looked at me and said, you know what, you don't have to do this anymore if you don't want to. If you've reached the end, we could do this business together um, on a permanent basis. And from that point on, I could see the next path. And it wasn't something that I ever aspired to do, but it's definitely a part of you know, the journey of going, OK, well, let's try something new. And, you know, then in the process of creating a business, I ended up in a CEO role, having never embraced the CEO title. It's never sat well with me. I don't quite understand why we need these chief titles, but mm. we seem to really like them. Yeah. Um, so that's how I ended up there. Yeah. So Randall is an ex-police officer? Yeah, he was a um, detective sergeant at the Queensland Police. He mm-hmm. spent 16 years and had a really wonderful career, but he developed post-traumatic stress disorder and the police are funny about letting you stay in the police with access to a weapon and PTSD, <laughs> as they should be. Um, so we we went through that process. That was um, What was that moment like when you realised that mm, he had post-PTSD? Well, look, in the first instance, um, it was actually just pure relief because... It was something. Um, up until the point of diagnosis, I'd concluded that I'd just married a complete prick. And I really, I really did. It sounds terrible. But I remember standing on the front lawn and saying to my parents with our eldest child who was a toddler, I don't think I can stay in this marriage and because it's just not a very nice... Now, he was never... He was never abusive or anything like that, but he just was a particularly unpleasant lost man at that point. And for those that know him now, he has you know seasons where the police officer in him kicks in again, even though he's not. But he largely kind of embraces the world. At that point, he embraced no one, had time for no one, and was really cold and removed. So when there was a diagnosis, I was just relieved because I, th- I went into fix-it mode. Right, we know what it <laughs> we is. Know we know what it is. We can do this. Yeah. And we were really clear the priorities on you being healthy and happy. What do we need to do that? And I've got to say the police were, um, they have an amazing program when you're unwell in the sense of the financial backups there. So we actually had the space for him to take 18 months to work on getting well and he still got paid. And that, you know, it's an unusual environment because it took one element of stress away from our family. But he um, improved. At that point, um, you know, 11 years ago or so, PTSD still wasn't really something that we talked about. Mental health is, you know, if you imagine how we don't talk about it enough now, we really didn't talk mm-hmm. about it then. And there was no real plan for him. Um, but we, we made our way through and we thought we got through to the other side and indeed for a number of years we did. Um, but we had a, he had a second relapse and I could see it coming for about two years but couldn't get him to see it was coming. And um, he, in 2015... Um, became quite unwell again and needed to take the 12 plus months off. And the second time, they say that any relapse, the second time's harder. Because mm. in the second time, you now know what it takes to get through it. And you also know that you're not immune and that it can come again. And so you get caught in that, that space and being the partner of someone who's unwell is you know, really challenging because you don't feel like you can share what's happening for you 
it's just about them at that point. You've got to support and uplift mm. and yet you're going through that Yeah, yourself. and we had four children second time round too. The first time round we had, you know, one. So it's just a different world. Yeah, huge. Because you've, I mean, you've, um, this isn't the first time you've been very vocal and um, you're very open talking about yeah. Randall's experience and your experience. How important has that been for you personally to to be able to share that with others? We had an agreement. We, you know, the power of someone being willing to share when there is a mental health problem. When Randall first got sick, we were really lucky in the sense that we had had a close friend who had been open about an episode of depression 12 months earlier. And so we felt we could be open. Now, we were still choosy. One of the lessons we learned was you pick who you share with because you have to protect your the recovery journey and people... Why is that, do you think? Like, what What? Well, what, I mean, what are you protecting? Well, I think you're protecting the space for him to know that he's genuinely ill. And there's a, still a lot of people that will say, um, surely you can just smile and get on with it, you know, surely... Yeah. And they have an expectation that you will stay in the same place. Surely you could stay in the police. Yes, you're not sleeping. No, you're not very happy. Yes, you're scared of the world at large. But, you know, the soup is really good. And so why would you leave? People get so scared of change Mm. that they feel the need to put that onto you. And the one thing I know about mental health and recovery is that you have to be completely willing to throw on the table your whole life and look at it and go, where can I change this? Because you're not going to get better if you don't change anything. And and a lot of uh, mental health recoveries. I mean, and I'm not saying don't have the drugs. Randall, medicine has actually helped Randall on a number of fronts, but he's now in the process of coming off it. But there's action that you have to take outside of being medicated. And so leaving room for people that recognise that mental illness is genuine and that you aren't just, you know, being a, a sulky person in the corner, that there's something really at the core of you that is shredding you and you need that space. Um, so, you know, for us, we've been, we had an agreement right from the start that we would speak of it, we would speak openly to people that we could trust at that point in the recovery, then once he'd got through that, we have spoken about it um, to anyone who will listen because I think as a community we need to do a whole lot better in understanding and um, acknowledging wrapping our arms around people that are going through a period of mental illness so that we can take them through to the other side. We never will if we continue to pretend it doesn't exist. These stories and, and creating that space, as you say, not only for, for Randall but mm. also for yourself, how important has that been for your, your as you say, second relapse, four kids? Yeah. You know, in terms of We've talked about through. it with the children. Yeah. Um, you know, the interesting thing is the children are influenced and by the age. Declan Declan's is, 14, um, yeah. Ellie's 11 and the twins, Will and Amelia, are eight. Yeah. And so they've been old enough. We have always been open with something like post-traumatic stress disorder. Randall has... Um, a full fight or flight response to something as simple as something getting dropped behind him. Right. And so for yeah. us, we've always been open with the children that dad's reaction um, is based on something that happens to his body. But we were open about where dad was at. And, you know, one of the be- most beautiful parts of his first piece of homework in the second round of recovery was that we had an outstanding psychiatrist, he's really well-known Australia, being outstanding in the, in the field of PTSD, Dr Andrew Koo, and we were so lucky to get him. And his first piece of homework for Randall was he wanted to Rand- Randall to go home and spend 10 minutes of undivided time with those children. And that was the piece of, that was his very first piece of homework and recovery. And it's because it's not, you're, the mental illness, you can often step away and instead of stepping in to people and connecting. And so we were open 
with the children. We always have been. We've been open with our staff. Um, uh, there's a funny role in leadership where, you know, it's not my role to come in and fall apart in front of them, but it's certainly my role to say to them, this is a difficult period. And, you know, if at times I'm, um, you know, having to duck off early, this is what's happening for us. And so we had to find this balance of still, still for me to give leadership, but to give authentic leadership where um, people could understand you know, what we were tackling without needing to see my vulnerabilities laid out, you know, for everything. So I had to find a couple of great spaces that I could share everything with and know that they were safe. Um, so, yeah, for the kids, there's no secret. Uh, I told the school, I would tell anyone that had an impact on our lives, this is where we're at, This is we will make it through the other side, but I want you to know what's happening for us. Such a beautiful role model in a lot of ways, as you say the importance of, um, as communities, that we wrap our hand, uh, arms around, you know, people mm. that are experiencing and uh, mental health and um, journeys and, and ups and downs of that and the people who are alongside them. And the truth is 100% of people in our community will be impacted by mental health, either by someone they know or by themselves personally. Um, and being on the receiving end of that, I imagine that role model of actually going, okay, I, you know, let, allow yourself to be the one who's have, you know, having others wrap their arms around you oh, is hard. Hard. Or? And it's hard when you're um, vulnerable and sometimes that extra edge of care can be the thing that almost breaks you, yeah. if that makes sense, because we get good at we get good at the steel. We just have to do the next thing, yeah. we go to the next appointment, yeah. we have yeah. the next conversation. Completely. But the other thing I've realised about why I'm so vocal about mental health is that the more I focused on what was good for Randall's recovery, the more I realised it was actually good for all of us. And so there's this part of me that went, if we talk about this, and Randall's homework, you know, connect with the children. Go and spend 10 minutes a day and genuinely connect, whether it's down in the pool or running around in the yard or sitting having a chat. I looked at it and went, this is good for all of us. Why don't we actually talk about these things? Why do we kind of create it as a, as a mental health path? And, mm. you know, because we get so fixated on mental health being negative, but we actually all have mental health to maintain. And so I, I thought if we start to talk about his homework and the things that are going well and how do you connect as a couple, um, how do you connect into work that you enjoy, how do you get your body moving? Um, if we talk about all of those things, they're actually benefits for the rest of the community. So why keep it quiet? Why not stand And why it? keep it behind closed doors? I mean, you've just spoken to, um, I've, I've done work as a clinical practitioner um, in clinical settings, working with people with depression, anxiety, personality, a whole range of different things. And exactly, I had exactly the same experience. I'm like, we are talking about how to get a good night's sleep. Yes. Like, you know, how do you craft that 10 minutes to go for a walk around the block? Yeah. And all of us need to be part of this conversation. So it's a big and part of we were joking this podcast last night, but you know, one of the first pieces of um, back in the first round, the psychiatrist said to um, Randall, "Go make love to your wife." <laughs> and he came home, and I looked at him and went, "Yeah, of course that was the advice, <laughs> honey." But I, but we were joking about it last night, going, "But that, but it's true." And now yeah. now we know there's research that says that if we connect physically for 20 seconds a day, what it does to our cortisol levels. Yeah. And so I looked at it and went, "Oh, so there's actual research. It wasn't just you and the boys' club getting a tick." <laughs> um, but those are the things that we don't talk about it. We no. just don't talk about how we live a full life and how it's actually great for uplifting us and for creating a really wonderful space in life so that the hard times are easier to get through. 
um, and that when someone's doing it tough around us, we're better equipped to surround them and to carry them across the line. Mm. Now, you, there are a couple of incidences where you've, you've put yourself um, in, in the space of challenges and yeah. uh, one of the... One of the probably main reason we kind of even connected and, and started a friendship was through um, a common common care for and interest in a charity called Hands Across the Water and and they they have a bike ride which I know you have done twice. Uh, you did the first one four years ago, um, first and and then and then this this, this year this year Jan, this January. Um, so first of all, congratulations Thank for you. this January. <laughs> but what I understand is, you know, even four years ago, you didn't even know how to ride a bike. Why would someone no. sign up to a bike ride? If you well, didn't look, know how I to have ride? a rule. The founder of Hands Across the Water is a gentleman by the name of Peter Baines, outstanding um, fellow, and. But I have a rule and I've told all my friends, do not look him in the eye because if you look him in the eye, you're going to find yourself in Lycra, somewhere in Thailand, <laughs> riding a bike for more kilometres than you think is feasible. And I think it's just that he tells the story so beautifully of hands that when you look into the eye, you connect and you can't step away from that story or I couldn't. So he um, he tricked me. I like to say. <laughs> he um, sent me an email. We were talking about something and he asked me when I was going to do the bike ride and I thought, oh, this is genius. I've got the best reply to this because I never learnt to ride a bike as a child, never. And um, so I replied to the email with, I would love to, Pete, but I never learnt to ride a bike. And in reply I get one, a one-line email that says, that's just a choice, really. And all I could think was, as I read it, was, damn it, I'm going to be riding a bike in Thailand. <laughs> I'm now going to be riding a bike in Thailand. So at 40, I did what all 40-year-old women that can't ride bikes and are overweight and unprepared do. I went and bought myself a bike from Toys R Us for $79 and I started to learn to ride a bike. And what I realised was I never really liked to ride a bike four years ago. I learned to stay on one. And so I got to Thailand and I managed to do about 500 of the 800 kilometres and I learned a lot about myself then. But I got caught. Remember I said don't look him in the eye. I got caught about 18 months ago having dinner in Thailand at one of the um, orphanages that Hans supports, Man Hom Hug. And across the table, Pete looked him in the eye and said, do you think you'll ride again with us? And I, I had that moment where I thought, oh, he's just done it again. I'm, <laughs> I've looked Something him in the in my eye brain and I'm now clipped. going to be riding a bike. But this time around I did a lot more preparation. I still could have done more, but I was a lot more prepared. I took lessons in, you know, and I I thought to myself as I was speaking to the instructor, you know, oh, I'm 40, I was 43 at the time, you're 43 and you're probably the oldest person you're giving lessons to. And he proceeded to share with me all these women that he was instructing in their 60s that had never learnt to ride. And I thought to myself, Wow, you really old people. Are, yeah. <laughs> Until I went back home and Randall, my husband, just said to me, yeah, well, you're probably, what, you know, 16 years away? And suddenly I realised that I was a lot closer to 60 than I'd ever wanted to contemplate. So, But I went and did the ride this year and I did every kilometre. I was lucky enough to do it with my husband and with two really dear friends, um, Ben and Annie, and um, it was an extraordinary experience and it was a perfectly timed 
experience. In our industry, the last um, 12 months particularly have been really difficult and challenging. And on the first day of the ride in January, my husband, we went, got into the room at the end of the day, and my husband closed the door and looked at me and Randall said, we are never doing this ride again. And it's you know, Day one. Day right? one. <laughs> and you know when you're looking at your partner and their face has that look and all you can say is, that's fine, no problems, because you're not having an argument in that moment, you realise that you've reached this limit. Yeah. But on the last day and on the last leg, Randall rode beside me into Barnholm Hug and he said to me, you know, this has been the absolute right thing for us to do. We begin the year not defeated, but we begin the year having achieved something we didn't really know if we could do. And so we ride in and we ride into our year with the possibility of what could we do with this year? And um, he said, I looked at him, are you going to ride again? He goes, yeah, I'll ride again. (laughs) So at some point, I will suffer from a relentless display of lycra again, but I reckon I'll leave it a couple of years. <laughs> you know you're going to be looking someone oh, in the eye no. and it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, the first 24 hours, you know, it's like I can even look at people from the chin up. Yeah. <laughs> no, no looking below. So, so and, and this time, I mean, it's such an extraordinary, as you say, journey and, and even those eight days to go from we are never to mm. this is our year of possibility. What did you personally learn about yourself in those eight days oh, this year? I learned that my head chatter is way out of control. I actually named her Olive and um, I decided to give her a name, the head chatter that says you can't. Mm. And you know, I'm 44. She's had far, far too much control. And I told my friend Annie that I'd named her Olive and it was a text exchange. And Annie texts me back and goes, I never liked that Olive chick. Let's ditch her. <laughs> and it was this moment of going, I can ditch Olive. Like yeah. I don't have to keep this part of my head. And even personalising her stopped it being me. Does that make sense? Um, The other thing I took away was that you should never ride a hill until you're on it. When you're riding in Thailand, you can see the hills coming and sometimes they look so big. Um, You know, Pete likes to call them gentle undulations, but frankly, Pete's full of shit (laughs) and they're hills. (laughs) But sometimes I I realised that I was riding them in my head before I'd even got on them. And so I, I was spending all this energy that I didn't even necessarily need to spend because sometimes before you get to the hill, someone appears to direct you off to the left or the right. And that hill was never yours to ride. But I also realised that if it is a hill for me to ride, I make it. I don't have to make it fast. I don't have to make it in a way that's, you know, worthy of a medal. I just have to make it. And so I realised that as I tackle life this year, that I should never, whilst I can see hard things coming in the future, should never really try to ride them before they're there because I'm wasting the time and energy and the joy of the segment that I'm on. And sometimes it doesn't happen and you don't have to do it. So I, I went back to the business and went, guys, I want to know which hills we have to ride this year. And we pl- did our, turned our strategic plan into hills. The poor things are so over-cycling analogies. And I'm not a sporting person, so they're not used to having any sporting analogies at all, poor buggers, but they're stuck with the hills. Mm. But it, it was really one of those big lessons for me. And the other part that I took away was who you ride with makes an extraordinary difference to journey. I was lucky enough to be surrounded by people that, you know, those that would appear when they knew it was hardest and they would just ride quietly to me. Someone, Kathy Sevnick, rode beside me on a particularly hard and long day and I said to her, I just need to tell you something. 
if at any point I stop this bike and I tell you I'm getting in the support vehicle behind us, I want you to tell me, no, not today, you're not. So I put in place a plan and then I never had to use it. She just went, yep, I've got it. But it meant that I'd already kind of declared it and who I rode with at that point. If I'd ridden with someone at that point who said to me, listen, sweetie, it's all right, you can get in the support vehicle, I would never have actually finished all the kilometres because the minute I'd given myself that leave pass, I would have taken it if someone else had said it back to me. So who I, who I let speak into my life, who I ride through life with, um, the, the actual experience in Thailand reminded me that the power of those people that you surround yourself with should never be underestimated. And to publicly go, you have permission to pull me, completely, pull me up and pull completely, me out and yeah. me keep going. Yeah, and, and to have confidence that they actually will. So you've got to pick the right person that won't stumble at that moment and goes, okay, I've got it. I am that person that will hold you to account on this. Extraordinary, extraordinary experience yeah. and a, a huge achievement, as you say. No doubt you'll be doing it again and learning. Yeah, yeah, and muttering on day one. I'm sure that <laughs> day never one doing we're this never again. doing this again. <laughs> I love your approach to life and so much of, um, I mean, you're in the field of education, mm. but I think so much of, of even what I love hanging out with you and the conversations you have is that you are passionate about education yourself, um, that you just absorb like a sponge um, those lessons that you learn and, and even, you know, an eight-day bike ride, which is meant to, like, it's not a holiday, but it is meant to be time away from work. But you're you're well into, yeah. let's actually pull this lesson back into the work Completely. space. Um, so te- let's talk a little bit about Churchill education. Um, just what is it? Just to give people well, a bit Churchill of an understanding education of what is you do. Um, a registered training organisation, which is you know, the official. I've just ticked the government box that they say we have to use. But really, what we do is help adults continue to learn in an active way. So, university is all about the theory, and vocational edu- education is all about the doing. And I really love the distinction about that, and the fact that vocational education in what we do is that get dirty, get in. Yeah, throw some theory in, but really start to apply what you're learning and have someone alongside you giving you that feedback about this is a different way you could do it. I'm fascinated with adult education and I've got four children in school and I look at the different ways that we um, are educating our kids and we continue to have this immersive experiential base that we, as parents, we really want for our children. The outcry comes at the idea of the children sitting at a desk for six hours a day. We want them up and we want them to experiment and we want them to get things wrong. And then when we get to adulthood, we want none of that in our education. And we don't um, look for that when we put professional development packages in place. We don't look at, we put ourselves in a room and it's the same room. It looks the same. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. Mm. And the mentos are on the table and we all shut down and we expect us to sit there. And so for us, Churchill's all about how do we create an immersive experiential learning experience that starts to challenge you, but lets you have room to get things wrong. Um, Our youngest son, Will, has dyslexia and um, it's been a real eye-opener for me on what can we do to change learning? How does the brain work? But why don't we do this for adults? You know, why do we create this different world that children get to have? And I also think that education should completely be about challenging and growing our character. Um, uh, Wahi Ali spoke recently, apparently, in an interview about um, that you know, someone said, should we be better educated? And he said, no, we just need better character. And I actually see a space where education should allow room for character to grow. So that's the work that we do. We recognise people's life story 
and we turn them into qualifications and we we start to extend their learning. But I look for ways of Churchill should completely be about what impact have we made on people's character, what example have we set. Um, for us, we talk about brave hearts and minds. And I think what an extraordinary Well, We talk about, you know, whether you're for or against, we talk about Trump and we talk about Australian politics, but we see a lack of that character. We see a lack of brave hearts and minds, but the community's crying out for it. And I think education as adults should be a part of how do we extend our character? How do we learn in a way that's immersive where you can get things wrong? And you can stand out. Why do we stop wanting people to learn when they leave school? So true. And that's the piece that um, I think most people, when you have that experience, you rave about it mm. for, for years. How has that uh, impacted the way that you have chiefed this organisation, the way that you have led? Oh, I have always um, done things a little differently. My HR manager laughs and I think some of that came through, to be honest. We had about eight national awards we received last year. And, and the thing for me is it's normal. So I look at the behaviour that they're holding out as innovative and I get asked to come and speak about something innovative. And I look at it and go, that's just normal. Surely we should all try and do this. And so I look at it, I have a principle around there's design or default. And um, I'm a bit inclined to getting mentored by dead people. And I know that sounds quite awkward, but <laughs> I seem to be able to, I seem to find people who have got this great wisdom and often and I hunt them down to try and become their friend and find that they've passed. And Jim Rohn is one of those people. And he has a, a quote around, if you don't design your life, someone else will. And guess what they've got planned for you? Not much. And so I've applied that to Churchill and how we create a company, that sense of if I don't design this culture and design this organisation, somebody else is going to. And the they probably don't have the plan, the ideas for it that I do. So I work really hard on creating experiences where our guys can um, be challenged to learn, where it's tactile, where we look at how do we envelop the whole of the senses. Um, we Friday, we just did our monthly catch-up, Grizz's Bar and Grill, right, bacon and egg rolls and you know, silly things like putting everyone's name on a ping pong ball in a jar to pull a person's name out and to have, you know, five of us share our high for the month, our low for the month and what we're most grateful for. And I do that because it's immersive because you have to physically touch something and, and it's active and it doesn't, you know, bacon smells great and so the senses are engaged. And I, in everything I do, I design a full response to how do I extend their character? And I was talking to a friend yesterday who's addressing culture in her team and I said, you know, the reality for me is that as a founder of a company, your heart should be reflected through all that is done in that company. And um, that's hard work. And it's also not right for everyone. Not everyone wants to be extended. And nine times out of 10, I found that when they head off, if they didn't want to be extended, well, you're to blame. Um, but I think creating space, I'm really clear from the outset, from the very ad this is who we are. This is what we're likely to do in impacting your life. Give them a sense. If you're stepping in, you know that my goal is that you leave us better than when you came and that we have been courageous enough to address our own characters and our own education and not just our students. Can you imagine being taught by someone that wasn't expected you to grow but was never prepared to grow themselves? True, yeah. You're going to get student engagement yeah. where if you see yeah. the teacher lit up. So my or... mantra is that we move and then we improve. Um, but we can't sit waiting to be perfect before mm. we actually make any movement. Um, so. And you alluded to, and I imagine that you've had to make some tough calls where people have oh, gone, completely. no, 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 
Yeah. How, how do you find that process? I still find it um, challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I've had to revert to this point. I, and I'll be honest with you, I've got an ex-staff um, member at the moment who um, has said some things on social media about me that aren't particularly flattering. And the interesting thing for me was that she resigned. You know, wasn't she wasn't forced out. She just wanted a pay rise and we said no and she resigned. But I look at it and go... I, I went home and thought to myself, oh, that doesn't feel very good. And then I just had to stand there and say, what is my role in this? Um, how did I behave? And I had to genuinely, and I'm, one thing I'm known for is I'm really, I think I'm pretty good at actually genuinely reflecting on what I've done and where is room. And I've worked out that there is always something I could have done differently. With her, I should have believed in her more. And I should have made that obvious, if that makes sense. She wasn't my hire and um, I... I, for that reason, I wasn't as involved. Does that make sense? Mm. And she got that sense. And I realised the big lesson, the gift that she gave me was that I realised that if I don't believe in somebody, I either need to fix my position so I do or I need to let them move on. Right. Um, and so I looked at that and then I had to look at, okay, that's my lesson? Great. I'm only here to learn mine, <laughs> not hers. Mm. So that's been the part where I've had to kind of stand and go, my lesson, have I learnt it? Because if I haven't, I'm getting it back. <laughs> so it'll be with another team member at some point. I'll get it back. So have I learned it? And I think with her I have. Um, that I feel I can see what I could have done differently. And then I leave it and let them learn their lesson. Um, but if I try and carry them, you know, I just can't keep the weight up in the sense of it's not. It's my position to make available the chance to um, learn and grow. But not everyone will take it. And if that's the case, nine times out of ten, they'll actually make their own way off. And if I have to help them in the meantime, do it respectfully. It's a great piece of interview um, Oprah did with the CEO of LinkedIn where he talks about our responsibility as leaders to hold people to account for what the company needs for them and to create the space for them to go and to act quickly on that. And we talk about a higher, a slow, fire, fast, and we never do it. We're no, not friends. no, no. We don't want to yeah. do it. In fact, we, no. we invert it. Yeah. Get really like excited. We fall in love with in. someone. Yeah. You know, we fall in love with a new employee and we think they're going to be just exactly what we're looking for. Yeah. And then when they're not, we, you know, mutter and drag it out. But in reality, I think the lesson, I look at every person who works with us, it is a privilege when they choose to work with us. At some point, they will move on. And at that point, I need to know what it was I learnt from the experience. And I, um, I but I can't have control of what they learnt. It's... It's such a powerful, and I'm, I'm absolutely there with you in terms of I think the way that we lead, the way that we craft and the way that we invite people into workplaces needs to be going down this path. I probably also get frustrated that this is so new and innovative to be, <laughs> to even be thinking about it, right? That it's, uh, you know, really how do we, we humanise people yeah. in that place? Um, and yet it's, it's uh, and I'm sure even for people listening, you know, to hear some of those stories and go, wow, an, an organisation that actually is really invested and interested genuinely mm. in people improving here. And, and if not here, then let's help you somewhere else. Yes. Because um, we're a volunteer organisation. Your company's a volunteer organisation. The reality is I have no control over who comes to work that day. Um, the team members do. I have no control over how, what the best self they bring or what version they do. It's a volunteer organisation. And I'm always fascinated by the fact that um, if we're unhappy, 
there are so many op- opportunities to go elsewhere, but we lock into that brain of I like the autopilot or that I want to throw the handbrake on, um, on the whole, will you change? I'd rather, I'm quite comfortable in my misery. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm not comfortable with working with someone in their misery. Mm. Um, so I, I don't want that. Yeah. Um, but I find it fascinating. And I guess that's the piece I took out of the CEO award of the year is that um, I think our job is to have these conversations. You know, that's the piece where where it shouldn't be deemed innovative. It should just be deemed this is what every company should be doing. So that I shouldn't get an award for de- being deemed innovative when it should be something that's just we are all brave enough. But I think we put up the the defences. And um, you know, I took a call earlier from a government department, and it always astounds me how suddenly there's this mode of behind a shield. It's like, we're still people. You'll go home probably to your family the same way I will. And we are more similar than we are dissimilar. So why do we have to behave in this formal way all of a sudden where we we stop being people and we start being roles? And that's something I think the more that we talk about it, I look forward to the day when this is on a conference agenda as being innovative and that culture way is a way it. of doing it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but um, not a then, conference topic. Yeah, let's mm. let's keep talking about yeah. it and and sharing those stories. So you are such a I mean storytelling has like you say been been so woven into your career and and who you are as a person. Um, and I think often it's those those personal stories, you know, the olive yeah, <laughs> kind yeah. of stories. I that, don't know why I named it. Olive. Oh, I Sorry. love it. No, I love it because it like does green. it gives us like oh there goes olive again. Yeah. She's off on yeah. a rant. What are some of those, have there been any narratives or stories for you personally that you've had to rewrite their yeah. ending? I, um, I go to church, I call it, each morning with a lady called Rita Pearson. She has a TED presentation, just over seven minutes. And um, when you see, take the time to watch Rita's presentation, you'll understand why I call it going to church. But one of the things she says in that piece, when she talks about every kid deserves a champion. She was a school teacher, um, regrettably passed. Yet another lady I tried to stalk to be my friend, but she died before I got there. Um, she says, if you say it long enough, it starts to become a part of you. And I've had that realisation that there's things that I've told myself from such a young age that they have become too much of a part of me. But I re- And for a while there, I thought that I might just be stuck with that forever. And to some degree, I may be. But if I start to focus on saying the good things, then goodness knows, they might become a part of me too. And so I've started to tackle that part of my head that, you know, questions um, questions myself, am I good enough? Who do you think you are? The two Brene Brown favourites. Mm. When, when Olive throws them at me, and she does, um, I've started to stop and think about um, what would I actually say to myself. I've got a fantastic team member named Phyllis Marsh, who, um, beautiful woman, she's an um, Indigenous woman from up north Queensland, and she challenged me recently and she said to me, um, and I, it's a perspective I took home and I've started sharing with every woman that I'm friends with is in a conversation and my daughter. She said, that is how I reacted. It is not who I am. And I looked at it and went, so sometimes I can process that is how I reacted, but it does not define who I am. It's not a forever thing. So he started to look at how do I challenge my thinking that I can have reacted poorly 
to something. Um, yeah, the lady that I just gave the example of earlier, I should have believed in her more and I should have expressed that differently. But it was how I was reacted, though. It's not who I am. My fundamental position is I believe in people. You know, Olive isn't right. Sometimes I think the voice in our head takes the reaction and tries to make the moment of reaction into a permanent and overarching statement about who we are, and it's not right. And so when Phyllis shared that with me, I went, oh, that's just such freedom. Because I can still acknowledge how I reacted. I can still address it as a change. But there's no way I have to lump it over my shoulder and walk forward carrying it on as defining who I am. It's not a badge. I have to keep wearing it every day. And I realised, if you want to put it that way, I probably had far too many bloody awful badges pinned over myself. And I don't know about you, but one of the things, and I'm sure it's actually you, I look at my daughters and I um, look about what badges do I want them to wear. And then I look at my sons and I say, I'm proudly raising them to be feminists. And my 14 year old laughs and goes, mum, I completely am aware of that. But I look at that and I see the difference that the boys don't carry anywhere near the number of badges. They're not as inclined to gathering them. And when they do, the badges typically say, oh, I look good today. Or, you know, they say a lot of positive things. Mm. Um, And my daughters, the girls and the women I see are more inclined to carrying the fault badges. Um, and I think it's time we started to take some of those badges off. And the best way I can do that for my girls is to put some of my own off, take some of my own off, unpin them, put them down and start to work out that's how I reacted. It's not who I am. Mm. It's not who I need to be. Um, so I think those are the pieces where I kind of worked harder on telling Olive to take a hike. <laughs> Sit in the back seat. Like, yeah. I'm, not, I'm driving yeah, here. Yeah, exactly. I love that. <laughs> what... Um, what story do you think you're at the beginning of right now? Oh, I'm so excited about we had Randall and I had this conversation in there's kind of a boom period for the industry we were in and we got offers to buy um, Churchill Education. And our accountant tells us, as they tell all you know, good clients, that you should always consider every offer. And so we did. And the thing that stopped us accepting was that we didn't know what we would do next. And so we've been having this conversation recently. The offers aren't there anymore and we stand at the start of a new journey. And I said, Randall, what would you do? He said, I love the recognition of prior learning arm of Churchill. He said, it's the story of how he was recognised, his experience was translated into qualification, how he became this sense of I'm worth something. And he said, I could do that forever. And I looked at it and said, and I could take Churchill's leadership that we've been developing and rolling out in different formats, where we talk about immersive learning, where it is experiential, where we challenge brave hearts and minds, then I could do that for indefinitely. That is the part that excites me. And so that's the start of a a new adventure. Um, And we're also in a new adventure, I think, in our marriage and our family because Randall's come through. And I looked at him the weekend. I said, you really are well, aren't you? And he said, yeah, I really am. And, And it's not to say that from time to time he might not get unwell again, but the excitement of standing beside someone that you care about and admire so deeply and acknowledge the courage of what it has taken. When he's, he's being invited at the moment to go and speak to different um, groups of patients in hospitals who have got post-traumatic stress, the pride I feel that he will go and share those stories um, and the adventure of looking at your partner and going, I'm so excited to do this next part with you, um, that's the basis that we've kind of stripped back and and we're looking at 
less of the the things that we need and more of the who do we need in our lives and what have we got to give? What is in me for you? What is in me for, you know, people that work with us? What is in us for our community? And that's the start of a great adventure for us. Exciting precipice to be standing on. No lycra. No. (laughs) Oh, you watch. There will be lycra. (laughs) So I want to come full circle. The Mm. name of this podcast is called Stand Out Life. Mm. So when I offer up that term to you, what does that mean to you? What comes up? What's it take to live a standout life? I think it's really interesting because in the notion of standout life is the idea that we don't all we we aren't all standing out, and um, that someone. You know, it's why we love celebrity, love someone to rise above. But I actually think we all have this contribution that is uniquely us, and that's the part where we have a standout life. And I look at it and go, that part. I'm about to have it tattooed on my arm. That brave hearts and minds. If we carry forward with a brave heart and mind, we all can stand out and the world has a gap made just for us. It doesn't need to have a CEO of the Year Award title to it or, you know, have done, you know, whatever the career post is or have a title with Chief at the start of it to have a standout life. You know, whatever role you've got, whatever space you're in is the capacity to really touch the lives of those around you and in that way we stand out. And in that, amen. <laughs> so thank you. We've gone to church. church. <laughs> Trisha, thank you so much. And thank you for sharing Thanks, your brave heart and mind. Thank you. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.